Welcome back to another episode of Trafficked. Today's amazing story is one you don't want to miss. I'm speaking with survivor Jenna McKay, who's got not only an incredible life story, but now passion and a, a commitment to make a difference through advocacy, advocacy that she does across the country. Jenna trains hospital staff, law enforcement, and other professionals on how to identify victims of trafficking and how to respond with victim-centered care. From her keynotes to addressing the United Nations and her upcoming book, Jenna is a, a truly such a difference maker, and I'm thrilled to introduce you to her. She breaks the stereotype that so many people have in their minds where they think, well, survivors go on into life hobbled in some way. They, they're never the same again. And Jenna just busts that myth, myth out of the water. Jenna, thank you for being here. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's an absolute delight. So you make this big difference today, but obviously it wasn't always this way. The reason you're able to make the difference is because you lived through this path. Tell us how your own trafficking experience started. Well, I wasn't a kid necessarily that you would picture to become a victim of trafficking. Um, you know, there was some dysfunction in the home, some emotional and verbal abuse from my father to my mother. Um, but other than that, I grew up pretty happy and riding horses. And I, um, at 12, started training, um, playing volleyball. Um, and the goal was to really follow in one of my big sister's footsteps and get a scholarship and play college volleyball. Um, and I mean, just that was what my life revolved around um, in junior high and high school. And then the man that would become my trafficker um, from the outside looking in also necessarily wasn't somebody you'd picture to become a trafficker. Uh, you know, he, we both, we met in a private Christian school. Um, his parents were, uh, you know, his stepdad was a pastor and a chief in the Navy. His mom had a successful business in the community. Um, and so when we met in high school, you know, it didn't start off romantic right away, but he would, we would date a little bit and then be off, but there was already abuse happening. Um, a lot of emotional abuse, breaking up, making up just, it was dysfunctional. And, um, I didn't really know how to get out of it. And, um, it was draining my self-esteem so much. And, uh, he graduated a year before me, um, and my senior year, my parents were separating, which was a big vulnerability for me. Um, and he just kind of made this offer like, hey, don't you don't have to deal with all this stress of trying to get recruited for college and playing volleyball and you don't have to deal with all the stuff at home. Just come live with me. Like my mom got her GED. Look how successful she is. You could do that. And um, unfortunately, I took it and I went with him. And when I dropped out of high school and threw away all those opportunities and all those things I'd been working so hard for, I didn't really want to go with him. I felt stuck with him. And when nobody from my teachers, my principals, my coaches, um, some, some people even in my family were really like saying anything to me about it, I felt like 
okay, so when I'm the star athlete, you care, but when I'm making poor choices, now I don't matter. And it really stirred up this 18 year old rebellion in me to leave. And I, this thing, you know, 17, 18, I was 18 in December. Um, I had my birthday, but I wasn't graduating high school till June. So I was just a kid, you know, I really needed the adults in the community around me to step in. Um, right. Jenna, can I ask, there's something you said a moment ago that I think bears underlining how your self-esteem started to be eroded. Can you share with us the dynamic through which he did that? Because it's so elusive to so many. Well, why did you go? Well, why did you do this? They think that it's just just a poor choice rather than, okay, a poor choice of a child compounded with this intentional eroding of relationship to self. Share some about that, will you please? Yeah, well, my identity really had always become be the best athlete. I mean, and that's really kind of where my confidence came from. And, you know, I, I, I had this weight trainer and he would work, help me work out to get in shape physically, um, but more mentally. Like he was like, you know, this is how you envision yourself when you're playing the game. And this is the mental toughness. And here's all the sports psychology. And I got so much confidence from that. And then when I was dating him and he was putting me down and like breaking up with me and making up with me, all of a sudden my identity was what he was telling me it was, which was, you're not good enough. And, and then there would be like this unhealthy thing of, oh, you are, and oh, I can't live without you. And oh, you're Oh, yes. And building me up. And then when he'd break me down and it's like, now as a grown healthy adult, I wouldn't let somebody treat me that way. But at 17, I didn't know how to get out of that. I never had been and in, even in a relationship before, you know? Right. And so when he would, when he would tear you down, what are some of the things that he would say or do? Um, really a lot of it was my looks. Like, you know, I was usually a brunette and he'd say, Oh, girls with bleach blonde hair are so much hotter. Um, you should wear this, you should wear skirts. Um, uh, I don't know. I, I mean, my grades were slipping and then he'd be like, Oh, like you should probably, you probably won't make it into college. Things like. Right. Eroding and undermining. It sounds like at every turn. Mm -hmm. And then the, I can't live without you when you feel as though your family's slipping away and your chances of getting into college are slipping away and your ability as an athlete is slipping away. The best you've got is here's one person who can't live without me. Oh, I guess I do matter. And it's, I, I wanted to highlight that dynamic because there's that it's, it sounds like you went from your self-worth was inside, like intrinsic happiness and self-worth to then suddenly it's extrinsic inside of him. And then he's got the say over you and it happens unconsciously. And now there you are, you go with him. And then what happens, Jenna? Well, and then not long after, you know, um, he kind of coerced me into marriage. It wasn't like this, like, will you marry me and be my wife? It wasn't, it wasn't, I don't even call it, he's my trafficker. I don't call him my husband. It was never a marriage, right? It was never, he wasn't able to be that. Um, and I was certainly not ready for that kind of commitment. 
um, looking back now, it was more of another way for him to have control over me. Um, and I just felt more stuck. And then when I moved in with him, I had known some of the things and people that he was hanging around with, but I didn't know the extent of the criminal activity he was involved in. And I started to see things and, um, you know, a lot of the things that he was doing was to get money. And there was a couple trips we had. One was to Tijuana where he had me branded with a tattoo and it was a very traumatic experience, very forced. Um, I had no idea that that's, I had no idea what he had planned. Um, and there was never a sit down conversation, you know, like, Hey, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to show you what to do. I learned this, like, you're going to go into this strip club or you're going to walk the street or we're going to go to this casino. Nothing like that. He took pictures of me that I thought were for him and placed them online. And, you know, this was, he was, he was, I knew that he was always on Craigslist. I knew that he was always in sexual chat rooms. Um, and so when the first night when it happened, I was used to strange men coming to our apartment door because of all the things that he was involved in. Um, but then this night was different and he invited this man in. And that was the first night that I was raped and sold. And what happened after was I looked down the hallway in complete shock of what just happened to me. And the man that just raped me was handing him money. And I remember thinking, I knew I was a victim, but I didn't understand why there was money involved. What did that mean? And I grew up with the same media as everybody else, right? Pretty woman is prostitution and kid changed to a radiator in another country that's trafficking. Like, what is this? Like, I didn't, I didn't sign up for this. Right. Was it ever addressed? Was it ever spoken about? Yeah. I mean, there was time. I mean, I, I was already so scared of him before this even happened. Right. Um, uh, there was domestic violence, but I didn't even realize I was a victim of domestic violence because my idea of that was somebody hitting me. It was a lot of emotional domestic violence and like taking my car keys and my phone and 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 separating me from my family and support system. Um, he went as far and as- Let's not forget the brand. I mean, that is me <laughs> nothing more physical than that. Um, uh, he went as far as getting a restraining order against my dad to keep my family away. Like he oh. was- um, but I was still right there in my community, 15 minutes from that high school that I grew up in. And it was like, I remember feeling like, why is nobody like looking for me or doing anything about this? Right. And I didn't know what my options were and what I could do. And, and like you spoke about with the, the media, the myth is every time I speak to people about it, oh, something you mean like that happens in Thailand or someplace overseas or, but it was 15 minutes from your school. Yeah. And yeah. we're, we're now in retrospect, were people out looking for you or? There was questions. I mean, I know my family was concerned. I knew they didn't like the guy, but they had no idea he was abusing me and trafficking me. No. They, um, uh, you know, I don't know. It's, it, people from my high school, I still have questions like, where were you guys? I mean, you have this girl headed to play college volleyball. She drops out and she moves in with a former student 
aren't there questions around that? Isn't something more going on? Isn't that, you know, isn't there something happening to this girl maybe that we should check on her? Um, Do you think because his father was a pastor and his mother was successful as a business owner, it was, it, it exonerated him somehow and no one even cared to look? That was probably a big part of it. And he played on that for sure. Um, he had like these, this two different lives where he would, I remember one time being with his parents and him saying, oh, we went to church and he made up this whole sermon and I'm sitting there watching him like, wow, we never even went. And he like made up this whole thing and they would always be like, is Jenna okay? Like, I mean, I was clearly not okay. And, right. and, and he would just like put on this whole thing of, yeah, she's fine. This is what, and I'm just sitting there like yeah, I guess I'm fine. And, and then was it, then you had this man come in and rape you. Was this now the norm? So it wasn't, it didn't happen every night. It didn't happen every weekend. Sometimes weeks would go by and I would think, okay, that's not going to happen again. Um, and then it would. Um, and you know, there was a time, there was one time he opened the front door to the apartment and I was working jobs during the day. Like it was like a double life. Like I was living normal, but then having this thing happen to me. Um, but he opened the front door to the apartment and he said, leave Jenna, if you hate it so much, if you hate being here, then go. And I started to walk out and then I stopped and I went where, right. And it's like, he knew what he was doing. Cause he didn't think I thought I had anywhere I could go. Right. I, I could call home. I didn't think that I felt less than like, now I'm not this star athlete in college. I'm this girl that's being abused and I'm looking different. My muscles are gone. I'm skinny. My hair is falling out. I don't even have my high school diploma. I'm less than, and this is the only place for me. God. And that's, that's the nail in the coffin, right? Mm -hmm. You're so separated from your loved ones. There's the restraining order against your father. You now have lost yourself. So what did you do? What then? So this happened over the course of that year. And um, the last time that he sold me, I hate to say it was the worst because they were all awful. Um, But this was the first time that I experienced a beating um I was raped in ways I didn't know I mean I was still so young innocent I didn't know people could be raped the way I was and that next morning I was in a motel room and it scared me because now it wasn't in the apartment now it was in a motel room my thought was what does that mean how far is he going to take this is this never going to stop and um I remember looking at myself in the mirror like not recognizing myself And not long before this experience, um, my weight trainer who had been training me since 12, I was at a stoplight and my trafficker was driving the car and my weight trainer pulled up in the car next to us. And I looked over and I was like, inside, I wanted to reach out and say, Mark, help me. Instead, I leaned back in the car seat so he wouldn't see me because I felt so ashamed of how I looked and what had become of me. And 
that's how I felt in that hotel room that morning. I thought, I can't reach out for anybody. Like, look at me. Like, how did this happen? And um, there was a phone call with one of my big sisters. And it kind of, the conversation came around to getting away from him and leaving him. And did she, you call from the hotel or how did you do that no, so the, he didn't know? The, I still had some contact with them, but um, just very vague and not real, a real connection. Um, and it wasn't right from the hotel room. It was probably a few weeks after it happened. Um, but she said something on this phone call. She said, you know, Jenna, you can always come home. And until she said that, it never occurred to me that I could go home. God. And the next call that I made was to my sixth grade teacher who had always kind of kept in contact with me, always was one of those teachers that made a real difference in my life. Um, and she always sent me cards and I reached out to her to help me study for my GED because I felt like to get away from him, I needed something to start a new life for myself. Yes. And without knowing, I would go over to her house and she had no idea I was being trafficked. And she helped me study and I passed and got my GED. And that gave me a little boost of confidence. Like, okay, I can get away from me. I have no idea what life is going to look like. And um, I left him. And did you go back home, Jenna? Or what did you do? I first stayed with a friend and then I went back to my dad's. And when I went back to my dad's, I went to the doctors seeking help. Um, I was around 100 pounds. I remember at that time I was wearing size zero jeans. In high school, I was like a five, six. Um, my hair was falling out. I had my branding. I had various stages of bruising. And not one doctor or nurse said, hey, Jenna, what happened to you? It was like, they were all talking around me, but not to me. And all I needed was them to say, hey, Jenna, what happened to you? And this is what happened to you. And here's what your options are. And we will keep you safe. And this is how it's going to work. And I would have spilled it out and said, yes, I'm so scared. Help me. I don't know how to do this. But I had no idea. I was looking out for me. Like, so if I talk and the police come, you're going to get him. But what comes of me? Yes. And that, those were the questions I had inside. And instead, they just let me go. And I just thought, well, if nobody cares, I'm not going to tell anybody. And at that yes. moment, I thought I could go my whole life without telling anybody. God. And so what changed it for you? How did you get up the courage or uh, to tell people? So it wasn't until six years later. Um, I moved on. I struggled for a while. Um, I would take college classes, have panic attacks in the bathroom. I would try working different jobs. Um, I was um, coping with all that trauma really unhealthy um, in unhealthy ways. But um, eventually I met um, a Marine and fell in love and we married. And after he got back from Iraq, we were stationed to Quantico Marine base in Virginia. And that for me was like, Hey, my fresh start, I can put this behind me. I'm building this new life for myself. I found out I was pregnant with our son. And as much as I tried to make this new life for myself, though, I was experiencing PTSD, even though I didn't know that's what I was experiencing. Um, then it was six years after I got away from my trafficker where I had a routine doctor's appointment. And by this point I had given birth. I had been to the doctor plenty of times. Nobody right. ever asked anything. And then this doctor pulled me aside and said, Jenna, have you ever been sexually abused? And it blew my mind. Here I was, I went to the doctor looking the way I did when I got away from him. 
now I appeared healthy, fit, happy. How did she know? It was like, she was uncovering the secret. Yes. And led to me not saying, I didn't say anything right then, but it led a couple months later, I had a breakdown and I went to the emergency room and then I was sent, I um, went to a mental health center and um, after another, after an overdose, I was sent back. I went home and had an overdose and I was sent back and there through art therapy is how I came out with what happened to me. And it was there that I was told what you have is PTSD and what yes. you survived is called human trafficking and having those terms and understanding them. Now I was able to start healing because I had yes. no idea what happened to me. So Jenna, how did you go from there to doing the advocacy work that you do today? So it was still quite a long healing journey. Um, after I got out, I went through more trauma. My husband left. I was now a single mom working three jobs, living in an apartment in the ghetto with cockroaches. And I thought this, there has to be more to this. Like I can't have lived through all this and then survived all this pain for nothing. And when I was in the hospital, even though I was there for my own self and to get the work done and heal, I would have these amazing conversations with the other women there who had been through horrific things as well. Yes. And that's kind of where it started to click where I was like, maybe I can someday do something with this. Yes. Um, and they also had me write down my story, um, which is now becoming a book. And um, so I, you know, I quit all my jobs and I packed everything into a horse trailer and <laughs> moved up north um, to Northern California. Um, there was a spot on my family's ranch where I thought, okay, I don't have to work a bunch of jobs. I can just solely focus on this work. And I just started speaking and volunteering, um, which led to getting a speech coach, which led to training and then led to starting the Jenna McKay Foundation and doing horse therapy for victims and led to speaking the United Nations, where here I am about six years later since moving here with in the horse trailer with nothing and no idea what I was going to do. Um, it's, it's also part of my healing journey and it's also yes. fulfilling and a purpose of all of that didn't happen for nothing. Um, yes. and there's a gratefulness there. Jenna, what would you say to other survivors who feel like there is a ceiling on how far they can go and how much they can reinvent and, can they become a contributing member of society the way you have? What would, what would your words to them be? Whatever happened, this is a crime that happened. And it was, no matter how everybody's story, no matter what it looked like, this is trauma that shouldn't have happened, but it does not define you. What defines you is what you decide to do with it. Um, going off and doing big work things is really exciting. But what I'm most proud of is the healing journey and that I am committed. And every week I'm in there with my therapist and I'm working through it. And every week I'm meditating and finding myself and figuring out the woman I am. Something that I should have been doing when I was 18, but instead was being trafficked. So right. I get to reclaim it. And so does everybody else. You get to decide, this is what I want my life to be. These are my options and that there are people that will help you that you don't have to do it alone. There are people that care about your journey. 
So when I started doing this work, one thing I was frustrated by was there was this kind of this talk of trafficking, but only like one or two of the ways that it happens. And I kept thinking, this is how I was not identified in my community because nobody's talking about the way that I was trafficked. Um, so what we need to recognize is there's lots of ways that trafficking looks like. Um, mine was domestic violence, all the things that he was doing and that he was advertising me line online and selling me in our apartment, there were signs there. I mean, I remember working, one of the ladies I worked for, she said, always asking me, are you okay? Are you okay? It's so easy to brush off. If maybe she asked, are you safe? I could have probably thought, does she know something? Yes, and so yes. And the next question after, are you safe is, if you're being forced to do something you don't want to do, if you're being kept from your family, if something's going on, I can connect you to people that will help you. If she had said that to me, I'd have been like, really, can you? Because I want the help. I just don't know what there is available. And then what, which people could we connect someone to? So any, there's organizations, you know, usually at least one in every state, but lots of communities have multiple ones. Um, law enforcement um, that are trained, hopefully, and yes. you know, respond to victims and not blame them, but get them help and then go after the person that is the perpetrator not the yes. victim um and um health care mental health and physical health doctors therapists all these things um wonderful and then people that will help them with the long time journey of now how do we figure out what you want to do with your life yes jenna what final words will you leave us with i think when someone says, oh, Jenna McKay, the human trafficking survivor, that kind of becomes my identity. And yes, it's a big part of me. Um, I've dedicated my life to this work and doing it, but that's not all of who I am. I'm also just Jenna. Um, I'm a mom to an amazing boy. Um, I have friendships. I like to ride horses. I, you know, I'm just a woman and yes, human trafficking happened to me, but it's not all of who I am. And we need to rec start recognizing victims that yes, this horrible thing happened to them, but they are who they are. And let's support them and come around them as a community so that they can become whoever they want to be after this trauma endured, they endured. Yes. Jenna, thank you so much for being here and sharing your voice and your heart. Thank you for having me. Thank you for all you do. If you or someone you know has been taken for sex trafficking or you suspect that's happening, call 888-373-7888 or text the word HELP to 233-733. With your help, we can stop human trafficking now. To keep up with all of our latest work, please follow us on Facebook and Instagram at The Trafficked Series. Please be sure to rate, review, share, and subscribe to our podcast, I am your host, Cheryl Hunter, and we are here to end human trafficking. So remember, if you see something, say something. This is a Conveyor Media production. Host and creator, Cheryl Hunter. Executive producers, Colin Whelan and Rebecca Sermons. Head producer, writer, editor, Celine Beth Calderon. And music by Mickey O'Brien. <laughs>